Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You speakers meeting. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, May 5th, 2013. The share ID number for Friday, May 3rd, is 4395. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now call on Philomena to read the 12 steps. Good morning, Vision for You. My name is Philomena, and I'm a compulsive overeater. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. 7. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. 8. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 9. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive readers and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you. Thank you. I will now call on Stacy to read the Twelve Traditions. Good morning. This is Stacy calling from Cleveland, the 12 Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise. 
lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. 7. Every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. 8. Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. 9. OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10. Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, other public media of communication. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all of these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you. The Big Book teaches us that recovery requires a transformation of thought and attitude. In essence, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. Here this morning to speak about her transformation and the sure power and safe guidance which led the way is Robin, a recovered compulsive overeater. Robin, good morning and welcome to you. Robin, star one to unmute. Now, good morning, Robin. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Robin. I'm a compulsive overeater, recovered, a recovered compulsive overeater. I would like to start with a third step prayer this morning, which, if you would like to read along with me or say along with me, um, is on page 63 in the big book. <clears throat> God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help, of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. It helps me to know that you're all out there praying with me. Um, sometimes I imagine that my higher power is an ocean and that we're all little drops of water in that ocean bumping up against each other and so very powerful when we crash into the shore and then recede again in serenity and calmness <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me i used to hear people qualify um about being recovered and i always wondered what that meant i wondered if there was like a time limit are you recovered after you've been in, in program for one year or two years or five years? And, you know, it's like I, I, I couldn't imagine what the word recovered actually meant. And today I know I'm recovered, and I'll tell you why. It's because um, I don't have the compulsion to overeat anymore. And as Leah said, I've had a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, which is on page 567 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, if you can hang in there with me long enough, I'm going to try to tell you how that personality changed to me. I'm going to tell you what it was like and what happened to me and what I'm like today. And I'm going to reference the Big Book Edition 4. That's the book that I'm in. There have been four editions of uh, the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's the one that I currently use. I also uh, use the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, and those are my manuals for living today. 
I came into OA in 1991, and my fourth child had just been born. And at that time, I was ready to admit that I needed something more than just a physical answer. Uh, my weight was completely out of control, but it would be another 10 years in a way, before I found the answer to my particular problem, <clears throat> which had taken many years to develop to this point. It had been slow growing and insidious. Sometimes it receded and sometimes it rushed in like the surf and then it would recede and then it would rush in and then there got to be a point where it was my total existence. And I'm going to try to tell you about that. Um, I'm going to start in the beginning. I grew up in Minnesota. And I was part of a middle-class family. We weren't rich. We weren't poor. I had everything I needed and some things that I wanted. Just had to wet my whistle. <laughs> my dad was a lawyer. My mom was an artist. And I spent my first 10 years pretty oblivious. I had really, I can't remember having any food issues in my childhood. I was I was well-loved. I had a parochial education, which means that I went to um, grade school and high school. Of uh, It was a Catholic upbringing. I was the youngest daughter of five. I had a younger brother. I loved desserts. I loved my mother, and I loved my best friend, Sheila. I had no, no worries that I can remember. And um, that was the case until I turned 11 when everything changed in my family. In the autumn of that year, my dad died after his third heart attack. And I can't say that I had had much of a relationship with him. It was in the 60s, and he was a World War II survivor. Um, but what happened was that my mother, who had always been my rock, became deeply depressed, and it would be years before she'd, she would recover. And my sister... <clears throat> the one who was slightly older than me started exhibiting symptoms of mental illness, which we did not call it mental illness back then. We just thought she was um, mm, flighty. You know, we just thought that she was, um, well, <laughs> we, we called her crazy, but we certainly didn't talk about it that way um, with the outside world. Um, and her mental illness got progressively worse as the years went by, my mother could not handle or control her. So um, my sister pretty much took my family hostage. And I, in all my 11-year-old wisdom, tried to take care of my mom's feelings. And I learned how to manage my sister. Uh, we shared a bedroom. So in order to sleep at night, I needed to calm her down. It was survival mode for me, and uh, her frustration often ended in pretty violent anger, and I was, I was really terrified of her. But I learned how to diffuse her, and um, I was rewarded for that ability by my mom, who thought that I was very special because I took care of her feelings and I took care of my sister for her. So I kind of I earned a place of um, importance in my mother's life, and that that was... That was a wonderful thing for me at the time. But it was quite a lot of responsibility for a child, of course, and I was fearful and insecure all the time. These were uh, you know, pretty big secrets to keep from the outside world. And you know, I, when I think back on it, I never once thought that it was an option to ask for help. I never once thought to go outside of my family to ask for help or even to talk about it with my mom and ask for help. 
So early on, uh, caretaking and isolation were what my personality was being built on. And this is when I discovered food. I discovered what food could do for me. I found that certain foods, mainly sugar, fat, and starch, and I would not have labeled it that then, but now I see that it's true. It was sugar, fat, and starch. And usually in combination, these foods seemed to calm my body. All that fear and anxiety that I felt became quiet and muted and cushioned. I could breathe, and I could ignore the sick feeling in my home. Uh, I could take care of what I saw as my job and my family, and I could do anything as long as I knew that the reward at the end of it would be my favorite food. And then later on, um, I would add volume eating to the mix, And I remember I always felt like I had this big hole inside. And the only thing I knew how to throw in there was food. It was like I wanted to be bigger and stronger and um, have more of a a solidness. I felt felt so wispy, I guess. And I, I needed to be solid and grounded. And I guess I had the thought that if I kept throwing food in there, that would happen. It would build something for me. So this was my childhood. And then when I hit 16, things started to look up. I got my driver's license, and I discovered beer and boys. And food took a back seat, and I was really ready for my life to begin. I met a young man. He was two years older than me. He was, a, he was a, in my, my eyes, he was a man, but he was only 18. I was 16, and I fell madly in love with him. Uh, I really just wanted a ticket out of my family, and I did not pay attention to the fact that he liked to drink, to drink quite a bit. Um, I thought the fact that he got in trouble was pretty cool, and I wanted him. So we got engaged when I was 18, which was two years after I met him. And by that time, he had spent some time in the Army. He'd gotten in a lot of trouble with drugs, and he wanted to clean up his life. And he didn't, I didn't know that at the time. And um, the drug use, that would come back to haunt us later. But I didn't know about his drug use then. I just knew that he was a drinker. And I wanted to get married. I wanted to have a family of my own. And actually, his, his, um, his use of, uh, you know, mind-altering substances, it wouldn't have mattered to me because I thought I was invincible. I thought that I could handle anything. I'd handled my mother and my sister, you know, so I thought I can shape this guy up. I can make us a nice life. So after our wedding, with a huge drunken reception, we lived in Germany for the final year of his army life, and during that year, the honeymoon haze lifted, and I discovered that he was developing into a mean drunk And I was scared, but I thought when we got back to the States, his drinking would slow down. It didn't. And then I thought when he finished school, he'd slow down, but he didn't. And I thought when he got a job, he'd slow down, and he didn't. And over time, I became frightened and more and more disillusioned. So this then, when I was maybe 20, was when I reestablished that relationship with food. And it became my best friend. It was um, a sedative. It was how I um, withdrew from reality when reality was too scary. It eased my mind. It eased my body. It eased my anxiety. 
I thought, if you had my problems, you'd eat too. It seemed to be the only thing that I did for myself. Um, It eased my unhappiness with my husband. When I was empty and sad inside, food soothed me just the way it had when I was a child. When I didn't know how to interact with him because of his unpredictability, um, food was there and it told me that it didn't matter, that everything was okay. I was filled with self-pity, and I thought I had all kinds of acceptable reasons to eat. I was an emotional eater, and I knew it, and I accepted that. I thought it was a good thing at the time. And the thing was back then, I was actually able to have my cake and eat it to eat it too, so to speak. I was able to overeat when necessary, when I needed to deal with some emotion, maybe after a fight or when I didn't feel safe. And then I'd use weight loss gimmicks and programs and that would bring my weight back down. And granted, that was always about 20 pounds more than the medical chart said it should be, but I was okay with that. And so a few years passed, and I decided that maybe starting a family would make everything better. Children would make me happy and convince my husband that he needed to stop drinking. And um, after two uh, miscarriages... Sure enough, God did smile on us because when I was eight months pregnant with that first child, my oldest son now, um, my husband Tom ended up in court-appointed treatment, and he sobered up and never again drank alcohol or used drugs. So he brought AA into our home, and thank God our children never knew um, an actively drinking parent. So... I thought this was great. I thought he'd been my problem, so now I'd be okay. No more emotional reasons to eat. Well, I was wrong. Now he spent more time at meetings and with his new friends than he did with me, um, and he expected to talk about things that married couples talk about, and I had no idea how to do that. I, I was so shut down and unable to communicate honestly with people because I was afraid about, um, I don't know, about abandonment maybe. I was afraid people wouldn't like me. I was afraid that he wouldn't take care of me. A lot of reasons for that back then, which, of course, I didn't know. All I knew is that he wanted to talk about things, and I didn't know how to do it. So we'd had one child, and then we added a second and a third within a four-year span, and then took five years off and then had our fourth child. And in... This time period, in this eight years when I was um, building a family, having four kids, something was happening to my ability to control my weight. Every time I had one of those babies, my weight would balloon. Each time I gained maybe 40 pounds, but I would only lose 20. So you do the math. By the time the last one was born, I was um, 80 pounds heavier on a 5'4 frame than I had been when I had started my pregnancies. But now the diet programs and gimmicks that had worked for me weren't working. I'd lose some weight, and inevitably an emotion, it would just blindside me. It was like I was just knocked off my feet, and I would need to go back to my binge foods. It was like I couldn't not eat anymore. Um, My emotional need to soothe myself was, uh, I couldn't ignore it. I just, I couldn't ignore it. It was like I had to um, 
in order to function now. I had to eat because there was emotion all over the place. So everything about life seemed overwhelming, and I thought food was the only answer to it. And I really started hating myself because of this. I wanted to lose weight like I used to be able to. I tried every self-help book on the shelf that I could find. I I tried all the diets, every diet printed. I tried counseling, weight loss aids, exercising, the buddy system. I tried meditating, praying, um, bribes. I remember um, affirmations were a big deal back then, which was in the 80s, and I would try, you know, I'd have all these affirmations written up and posted on my mirror and on my dresser and on the refrigerator. And when that didn't work, then I tried the opposite, which was I would stand in front of the mirror and stare at myself and um, try to get up enough self-hate that I thought that would do it. You know, I would stare at myself and swear at myself and tell myself how ugly I was. And, oh, my gosh, it was so damaging to me. Um, And, of course, that didn't work either. Nothing worked anymore. But I was gradually noticing that there was a new, very disturbing element. Um, My brain was changing. Um, I had a friend back then who listened to me for years, moaning and groaning and complaining about my weight and, uh, you know, how I couldn't lose weight and how I wanted to lose weight. And I remember her saying to me, can't you just accept yourself? I do. I accept you. Can't you accept you? And I just, I wailed. I don't know why I can't. There's something wrong with me. I can't. There's something wrong with my head. There's something wrong with the way I think. And it was very hard for me to think that there was nobody who could understand that, even this very important person in my life. But there was something going on in my head, and I couldn't change it no matter what I threw in there. When I wasn't eating, I couldn't stop thinking about eating. I mean, when I was able to put down the food for an hour or a day or a week, it was all I could think about was the fact that I wasn't eating. And then when I did eat, when I was eating, when I did pick up the food, I couldn't stop thinking about how I had to stop eating. So it was this constant state of um, dissatisfaction, disharmony, self-hate, oh my gosh, such unhappiness and anxiety. Uh, Food had lost the ability to please me. I'd start eating one thing, and I'd be looking once again for that feeling of ease and comfort, that I used to be able to to pull up. But after one bite, I'd realize it wasn't working, so I'd move on to the next food. And often that meant standing at the cupboard, and I would just stand there and open one jar after another. I'd use my finger or a spoon or whatever was handy to dig out the food. And all the time, my mind was just chugging away. It It wasn't sedated anymore. It was activated by the food. Just one more. I'll stop after the next one. I'll finish this package. I need to hide this. Where can I get more? How do I look? Can you see how miserable I am? Can you see that I'm sweating and uncomfortable? Do you know how much I hate myself and how tight my clothes feel? I stopped looking people in the eyes. I avoided social events. I was so miserable in clothes that were always so tight on me that I just I wouldn't even go out anymore. I stayed home, and I just took care of my kids and my husband as best I could. And what that meant was that I was eating up 
the lion's share of the grocery budget. I was protecting the leftovers so nobody else would eat them. I'd buy massive amounts of food. I mean, I would spend the budget money that I was supposed to be using for um, school events or for utilities or for clothes for the kids. I'd spend it on food, and I would eat thousands of calories before the kids even got off the bus in the afternoon. Then I'd be so sick, and I'd throw the leftovers away in the garbage before anybody came home. But then as soon as my stomach felt slightly better, I'd dig out, dig out the food. I'd dig it out, and I'd put it back in my mouth and chew and chew and chew and then hate myself. Or even worse, what happened was I would put the the food that I didn't want to look at anymore because throwing it away in the garbage didn't work anymore. So I'd put it in the garbage disposal, and I'd think, I really should turn on the garbage disposal and get rid of it. But no, instead I'll pour soap on it. So I'd pour soap on it and walk away fully knowing that I would be going back to that garbage disposal, digging out the food, rinsing off the food, getting all the soap off of it that I could, and eating that food. That still tasted like soap, but it didn't matter. I couldn't help it. It was just something that I could not help. I remember at one point that I <laughs> I, I prayed. I mean, I, I thought I believed in God back then, and I did. I had a, a higher power that I believed in back then. And I would pray certain prayers that I thought would get me what I wanted. And one of the prayers was, God, please help me. Please have me develop a jaw problem so that my jaws will be wired shut. Because if somebody else is feeding me and my jaws are wired shut, if somebody else is in control of the liquid food that goes into my body, then maybe, just maybe I can stop doing it, doing this. And always in the background was my husband, Tom, who was now quietly working his AA program. And I started to wonder if it was for me. So um, after my daughter Laura was born, number four, I went in search of an OA group, and I found one that had a babysitter. It was a really sweet group of women, and I think their motto might have been, we'll love you until you learn to love yourself. I know I heard that a lot in OA back then, and I thought that's what I needed. I thought more love, more acceptance, that's what I need. And I attended that meeting for 10 years. Um, I don't think I had one abstinent day in that whole time. But I hung in there. I was really excited about the steps. I had such high hopes um, because the head chatter was really awful. And um, I, what, I, what I heard, what I thought I heard, was that if I worked the steps hard enough, long enough, well enough abstinence would follow. So I, in my very mm, individual way, worked those steps. Um, I really prayed that working the steps would bring abstinence because I, I really could not figure out what it meant. I couldn't wrap my head around it. And, you know, I don't know that anybody in my group had an abstinence that made any kind of sense to me at all. But the thing that re- was really stuck in my head was that an alcoholic like my husband could quit, could quit drinking alcohol. You know, he never had to go into another bar. He didn't have to bring a, a bottle of alcohol into our home. Um, he could drink water. He could drink milk, but he couldn't drink alcohol. So he just, you know, we became a non-drinking family. And that looked pretty easy to me. But food? Now, I'm the mother of four children and a husband, and I'm constantly dealing with food. I'm shopping for it. 
I'm preparing it, I'm cleaning it up, um, I'm apportioning it, I'm, you know, doing all of the things that, that a housewife does with food. So how on earth could I finally, you know, I mean, how on earth could I make an abstinence plan that would allow me to be involved with food and to not eat it? I, I just couldn't even imagine how that could possibly happen. So when I'm in when I'm in OA, you know, I'm trying a number of food plans that I heard other people talking about. Um, first of all, of course, was no sugar. I tried to stop eating sugar completely, but you know what happened was I started eating natural sugar. I figured that honey wasn't the same as sugar, so I would eat honey, and um, eventually then, of course, I was eating massive amounts of sugar. It would sneak up on me because honey is sugar, for God's sake. Uh, One of the other things was that I was only eating three meals a day for a while and nothing in between. But what happened with that was that those meals got longer and longer until, once again, I was just eating all day. It was just one big meal. And then, of course, I did that too. I had a food plan where I ate just one meal a day, which could hold 3,000 calories. It didn't matter. I tried low fat. I tried no fat. I tried eating only when my stomach growled, which was an absolute joke because I don't think my stomach had growled since 1962. I even I returned to my old weight loss club um, and tried to follow their plan while I was going to OA meetings. And I don't know how I figured that that was okay, but I did that a number of times, still paying the weight loss group or the weight loss club, still paying my money and, um, you know, spending more of the family budget on my obsession with food. But, you know, every time I tried one of these food plans, there was always some ridiculous idea that I could take a day off or take a meal off or I could handle one or some. And once I did that, I'd be off and running again. And I'd think, okay, well, there's another abstinence plan that didn't work, so I really am hopeless. I, the thing I was doing, I was working the steps on my own. I never asked anybody to be my sponsor. I was really proud. I didn't want anybody to know what was going on inside of my head. My self-esteem was so fragile. And I didn't want anybody in the outside world, uh, outside of my own head, to look inside because I was really afraid of what they'd find. I was so ashamed of myself. And I wanted to manage my food. I wanted to lose weight and be recovered, but I really didn't want to stop eating. I mean, I was still I was still thinking that this was the only answer to my unhappiness was eating. This was also a time when my marriage was suffering tremendously. Um, Tom and I had a division of labor that I was pretty angry about. I thought that with his sobriety, he'd turn into my ideal husband, you know, that he'd take care of all my needs, that he'd be calm and considerate, you know, that he'd be a different person, (laughs) the kind of person that I wanted him to be. And he had different ideas. He wasn't interested in taking care of my feelings. He was working his program in his way, and that did not include caretaking me. Uh, He worked as a programmer while I stayed home. My job was to take care of the kids and to be a homemaker, and I thought that when he came home, he should relieve me, that he should uh, pitch in and take care of the house because I did not have the enough energy to do it. And um, so I thought that that should be part of his job title too. And when I worried about what the neighbors thought 
or our overgrown yard. And when I was out there raking or mowing with massive resentment, I did it with anger. And um, that anger spewed out in silent treatment, passive-aggressive comments, um, sarcasm, cynicism. So, you know, I wasn't a very... I wasn't a very happy camper or a good wife, and I became so paralyzed. You know, I was so paralyzed by my own life that I, you know, there were times when I couldn't breathe. My problems were, like, so insurmountable. My relationships were harder and harder to hold together. I had no idea who I was. So I was when I was with people, I just acted like them, and that made it harder and harder to be with people, um, especially when two different people were together at the same time. And I had to remember my role that, that I was with each one. And I would lie in bed and cry at, um, lie in bed at night and cry. And my prayer was, please take this pain away. Please make me abstinence. And then maybe all my problems will be solved. But as my problems got worse, I tried harder and harder to control my surroundings. Um, and the people in my life, you know, I was just hating my habits and at the same time protecting my habits. And in those 10 years, I'm watching my husband get better and better because of AA. I wanted what he had. I wanted that ability to let things roll off my back and that honesty and willingness to admit when he was wrong. And I knew that it was the AA life that I wanted. And I knew that AA or OA had the potential to bring me that method. I just didn't know how to connect with it. So that's the end of my drunk log because one day, after years of going to those meetings religiously every single week, I don't think I ever missed a meeting, and living like that, I got a phone call from a woman who had decided to start a new OA meeting where AA literature would be used. And I thought, you know, might as well check it out. And I went to that meeting, and what I heard there was something I'd never heard before. Uh, I listened to her talk about her abstinence, and it was it was done in a way that I could understand, understand abstinence um, and the importance of daily accountability to a sponsor, which, of course, I'd never done. And it, I don't know. There was something about the way it was presented. It was like these were the nuts and bolts that I'd been looking for, and I felt hope. I felt hope again, for the first time in years. And, you know, I remember I was sitting in that meeting that very first night, and I looked around at the people that were sitting in those chairs, and we were all new because it was the first time meeting. And I remember thinking, are these the people that will help me with my life? I mean, my experience with my mom, with my dad passing away, and, you know, my mom's descent into um, dysfunction, and such extreme sadness and what it did to our family, that was that had haunted me all my life. And I looked at those people and I thought, are these the people who will be here when my husband dies? Are these the people who will help me with that kind of life event that I feel so unable to face on my own? Um, and as I was leaving the parking lot, I remember I was I was excited. And at the same time, I just didn't trust my ability to do this thing. I mean, you know, what if I took the leap and fell on my face yet again? I I remember um, obsessing about 
what I was going to do when my kids got married. <laughs> I mean, three of them were teenagers and one was 10, you know, so far from being married. But I, I was, you know, just focused on wedding cake and what I would, what I, how I could possibly make it through some, one of my kids' weddings without eating wedding cake. Um, and I don't know what happened, but I remember a couple days later, after I'd been thinking about this for a couple days, I remember, and by this time I was abstinent, I remember having the thought, you know, maybe I'll just cross that bridge when I get to it. It was my first experience with living in the moment. Um, but anyway, that night, sitting in the parking lot, I felt I felt a lot of fear, and I felt hope. And um, I knew that this is what I'd been praying for, that somebody might here in this from this meeting take me by the hand and teach me and you know my life had up to that point in time it really felt like a spider's web i'd had the thought so many times that i couldn't i had no idea where to start to start unraveling this spider's web and because she had been talking about the necessity of working with a sponsor on a daily basis i thought okay i am ready to let somebody else unravel this spider web for me so the next day I made a phone call and I asked someone who was using the AA literature and was abstinence, and she had the kind of recovery I wanted. I asked her to be my sponsor, and thank God she agreed. And that morning we planned my first weighed and measured abstinent day of food, and she started my lesson plan for me, which was from the AA literature. And I have not had a compulsive bite since that, that day, June 14, 2001. That's almost 12 years. Uh, right away, I learned something I'd never heard before. I had never accepted the fact that I have a disease. And the big book, as I read it for the first time with an open mind, told me that I have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. And I understood, I had, I understood the allergy. I'd heard that before. I mean, I got that. I could buy the fact that when I put certain foods in my body, I wouldn't be able to stop eating them. Um, that was something that, that I had known for a long time. You know, I wouldn't stop eating them until I was miserable or passed out or zombied out or somebody interrupted me. Um, and for me, the category of substances had gotten larger and larger until it, there was practically no food that was safe anymore. Um, but I'd known for a long time that the first bite of sugar, fat, and flour, you know, by this time I had recognized that sugar, fat, and flour would set me up for hours, days, or weeks of binging, and that was regardless of any wish to stop. But the concept of the obsession of the mind, that was something I'd never heard, or maybe I'd heard it and I hadn't thought it was about me. I'd never considered that the gymnastics that my brain had been doing for years, the you know the the mind games that my my I'd been complaining about for so long, that they were part of my disease. I had thought that I could um, control my thinking as well as my eating, and when I couldn't, I'd been confused, you know, really confused and frightened. And now I was told that that obsession and the allergy were two parts of the same problem, the same disease. And that even if I kept my body from ingesting food, my brain would eventually tell me that I must ingest the food. No matter what my my experience, you know, no matter what my resolve of five minutes before, eventually I was doomed 
you know, my I was doomed to be held captive by my brain. Um, so my brain was the culprit. I've been paying attention to it all this time. I've been thinking that it, you know, has something important to say. I thought that the brain was actually, I I thought intelligence was God. I mean, I really believed that my brain was the thing that was going to save me and elevate me in the world and take care of me. But this told me what I was reading and learning now was that my brain had been lying to me all the time. So it was really thrilling to, to finally hear a complete diagnosis like this. It was different. It was different um, than what I'd been hearing and believing. And I thought that this is a solution and can cure my problem. So the solution. Well, the solution to the dilemma, um, my sponsor told me that it would be the process of working through the steps. I was finally abstinent. I was feeling pretty good. And my, what my sponsor told me, and I've heard it so many times then, is you have a temporary reprieve. The allergy of the body has been addressed. Now we need to ensure that the obsession doesn't return. And that meant moving through the steps, particularly steps four through nine. And I was pushed through them pretty fast. Um, and I understood why. Because if I didn't get down to causes and conditions, there was a good chance that I'd feel the need to pick up the food again. I mean, I could believe this about myself because I'd known for a long time that I'd been eating emotionally. So um, as scary as it was, I knew that I was going to have to dig around and find out what had happened, what was happening, what my thinking was, um, bring everything out into the sunlight and air it out, clean it out, and fix it up. So, you know, through through working working through these steps with her, I, I learned about my character defects. Um, I learned how my character defects set in motion the emotions that I hadn't been able to handle all my life since 11 years old. Um, I found out that for me, fear and selfishness had been the overriding um, emotions that would just take over my life. I found out about myself that I'd been expecting people to be God and to put me first. So once I um, identified these character defects with my sponsor's help, I was guided through the process of figuring out if and when I needed to make amends. And I was helped to figure out what those amends would look like, and I was coached in how to do them. I was given a lot of help in um, writing amend letters or scripting um, a, a, you know, something that I would say to somebody. And what I found was that my, my guilt and shame started lifting as this process was unfolding for me. So then I was taught how to keep clean. I had program friends who called me, and they processed their issues with me as they occurred, and that helped me to feel comfortable enough to do the same with them. Um, I was able to talk about things as they occurred, troubleshoot and um, come up with different ways of communicating or acting. And I got to practice my new uh, with my new friends, you know, practice these things with my new friends. And then out, when I was out in the world, when things happened, I had new skills and I could uh, pull up these new skills and use them. 
one of the things that really stuck with me was um, I was taught how to develop the pause, to slow down and think before talking and acting. And as all this was happening, my faith was starting to grow. So, um, at first, my higher power was my sponsor in the group. You know, I had proved to, my, to myself that um, on my own, left to my own devices, I'm going to go under, and I'm probably going to pull you with me. And in the early days, my surrender meant that I was surrendering to you, to this program, to this AA process, this OA process. And for the first time in my life in OA now, I was asking for help and taking direction. Um, I'd always been kind of an isolated caretaker, and I just wasn't satisfied with that anymore. I really wanted to be shown how to change. So the thing I told myself as I was doing all this in that first year was that I was a brand newcomer. I pretended that I hadn't learned anything in that 10 years of OA. I pretended that I was a brand new baby, and I wanted to learn everything new. I wanted to relearn everything that I thought I knew. And so I just opened up my mind and let it all in. And as time went by, as my sponsor treated me with love and compassion, um, and I watched other people doing and saying things that really seemed miraculous to me, I was able to start um, transferring my higher power from the group and from my sponsor and from you all to God. I became aware of God. Um, and what I was seeing in your life and in my life, too, was that there was a much greater plan in place than what I was coming up with, what I had come up with. I could see that God was busy taking care of you and your life. And I, I believed that he was doing the same for me, that the things that he, my higher power, choreographed were much greater than my puny vision. On page 45 in the big book, in that fourth edition, I'm told lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. And I was seeing this happen all around me, and I was convinced, and I was surrendered. And uh, the power that I had found to put down the food, it was starting to turn into power to think differently. And as I thought differently, my relationships healed and changed. My life became e easier. The need to find ease and comfort in food was gone. You know, I think I'd stopped growing emotionally at about the age of 10 when my dad passed away. Um, I had no idea how to be authentic in relationships. And when I was in that OA, uh, in this new OA setting, I came to see, I was taught, and I came to see that that awake um, room where I was going to meetings and then the network of people that I was establishing in in the outside world, the OA people that I was talking to during the week between meetings, I saw that as a classroom that we were um, we were learning how to be good friends. You know, I remember one of the things that really came to me when I was at a meeting was that I had no idea how to share. I had no idea how to take my turn. Um, I had no idea how to not take care of other people's feelings. And I was shown in that meeting that it's not okay to interrupt when somebody else is talking. You have to wait your turn. 
um, that if somebody's up front crying because they are abstinent for the first time in their life and they're pitching and they're crying, I don't need to get up and take care of them. They get to experience their own emotions. <laughs> so, you know, I was doing a lot of growing up in that classroom. And then as I was learning these skills in OA, I was able to start bringing those skills into my family life. And absolutely the hardest place for me to work my program was with my husband. I... um you know, I'd married him when I was a teenager, and I like to think that we grew up together, but I think that maybe he grew up and I stayed 16, or maybe I stayed 11. I don't know. But, you know, for many years, it my rights kept getting in the way. I always wanted to make sure that I got my fair share, and I'd fight to be heard and understood. I thought he was – I thought I was a doormat, and I thought he was unreasonable and selfish, but after working through one inventory after another, um, I learned where I'd been selfish, and I learned where I'd been unreasonable, and I learned where I'd been demanding. And, you know, my sponsor just kept telling me to focus on my character defects, not his, which was really hard at first. But I, I you know, got pretty good at it after a while. I remember there was one incident. I was standing on the roof. Um, I was about four years in recovery, and I was using a leaf blower to clean out the gutters. It was autumn, and Tom was in the house watching football, and I felt I was standing on the roof, and I was I was you know blowing out the leaves, and I remember I had this wave of resentment, just a wave of resentment that he was in the living room watching TV, and I was out there doing all this work. Where was he? He should be out there helping me. Isn't this a guy job to stand on the roof and blow leaves out of the gutter? And, you know, I had this resentment that I'd been raking leaves and I had this resentment that I was doing all this yard work and he was in the house taking time off. And, and you know, I'm standing there out in the sun and all of a sudden I had another thought. And it was, when had he ever asked me to go to his office and do his job? Never. It would have been ridiculous to expect me, a homemaker, to go do a programmer's job. He never even asked me to. Yet I thought nothing of requiring him or expecting him to help out around the house. I mean, I'm a homemaker. This is my job. So, you know, just like that, just like that, the resentment lifted. It was, it was like a, it was a spark. It was like the spark went off in my head, and all of a sudden there was a perspective shift just a perspective shift that was just incredible to me. And, you know, that's the personality change that we talk about. Because what I did with that then was I started using that experience to look at how I was performing my work. And I started doing my work when he was at work. And I started taking my downtime when he was down at home, taking his downtime. I did my job and he did his job. And you know, that was like the end of my resentment about that division of labor. I mean, it was just gone. It it was just gone. So, and then the other thing that I started noticing after that was that um, when we were together after our work, we'd often do separate things, which of course was fine, but I realized that I could make an effort to join him in his recreation so I started looking for things that he did that I could learn and enjoy. And I joined him in those things, and that made him really happy. 
you know, I was finding out um, something that was a step beyond what I had heard in that early OA meeting, you know, where the motto I thought was, we'll love you till you love yourself. And as I studied the big book now, what I was told and what I heard was, we'll love you till you learn how to love others. And it was really true for me. I was learning how to love my husband. You know, I was finding God in my home. I was finding love in my home. So all of those problems that had seemed um, so insurmountable when I was in the food, all those all those problems disappeared. Some of them took hard work. You know, others just faded away. Um, I often thought it was like, God was taking care of them in the back room while I was in the front room working on something else. And um, 11 years have gone by now since that first night, and there have been some really joyful times. In these years, I've been I've been blessed with three grandchildren, who maybe you can hear in the background here. <laughs> and those weddings that were all about cake for me, you know, the events that seemed impossible without food. Well, you don't. I found you don't need cake to celebrate love. <laughs> You don't need cake to make a happy occasion. And I would have missed out on so much if I had waited to take the leap because of some event. There have also been tough times. Um, about two years ago, I attended an AA convention here in Minneapolis, and the speaker had lost a child, and he was telling his story. He said, you know, he told the story about how he lost her, and he said he had a word of advice. He said, when tragedies happen... There's sometimes a moment when everything stops. Maybe you've just learned you have cancer. Maybe you've just gotten the phone call about an accident. And in that moment of silence, you have a chance to say, God, I'm yours. And I left there thinking about my fear um, of losing my husband. And his health wasn't great. Um, And my fear of repeating my mother's experience. And I believed that I could take that prayer and practice it and make it a part of my prayer routine. So I thought about it. I added three words to it, and I made it my own. And my prayer was, God, I'm yours, and I trust you. So now is the hard part. Um, A few months later, the hepatitis C that my husband had contracted during his drug use days seemed to flare up. And he learned that there was a new course of treatment. Um, It was much like chemotherapy and that it was available to him. And we went to see his liver doctor, and the doctor told us that his illness had progressed, that he now had cirrhosis, um, but it was well compensated, and that he could start the treatment, which was going to take 11 months. And we were told to expect it to be hired, that he might have to go on medical leave from work. And sure enough, after a month um, of starting it, he was only able to work part-time. And I prayed, God, I'm yours and I trust you. And then four weeks later, he was too sick to work at all, and he was put on full-time medical leave. And I said, God, I'm yours, and I trust you. I watched his cirrhosis symptoms get worse. Um, The doctors, you know, tweaked his meds. And I sat in the waiting room twice a week sometimes, and I prayed, God, I'm yours, and I trust you. And I did research about the illness and the treatment, and I talked about what I was learning with my friends. I stayed awake at night, um, you know, wondering what the outcome of this would be. And when other people suggested that I stop doing the research, I obeyed, and I prayed, God, I'm yours and I trust you. 
And then I watched as his stomach grew bigger and bigger till he looked like he was pregnant. And at the same time, his arms and legs wasted away and his face became emaciated. And I was honest with him about my concerns and I was respectful when he wanted to stay on course. But I prayed, God, I'm yours and I trust you. And when they stopped the treatment at month nine, I thanked God. But I still prayed, God, I'm yours and I trust you. And two weeks later, when he couldn't breathe, I brought him to the emergency room. And I repeated over and over and over in the car, God, I'm yours and I trust you, all the way there. All those hours of sitting in the emergency room until they put him in the ICU. And I tried to keep breathing and I prayed, God, I'm yours and I trust you. And two days later, when he spiked a fever and they put him on a respirator, I called the kids in and I prayed, God, I'm yours and I trust you. And the next day when they told me he'd had a heart attack and that his kidneys weren't working anymore and now his brain was also infected, I prayed, God, I'm yours and I trust you. And then the next day they told me to bring in the family members to say goodbye and I made those calls and I prayed, God, I'm yours and I trust you. And when they told me it was time to take him off the the respirator, take him off life support, I agreed and I said, God, I'm yours and I trust you. We all gathered around his bed and we sang his favorite hymn while they took him off of the breathing tube. And when his heart stopped beating 10 minutes later, I cried, God, I'm yours and I trust you. And then as we picked out his coffin, I prayed, God, I'm yours and I trust you. And when they played taps at his funeral, I prayed, God, I'm yours and I trust you. And when everybody left town and I was alone in an empty house for the first time in 38 years, I prayed, God, I'm yours and I trust you. And here I am today, six months later, still abstinent. And there was not one moment during that drama when food sounded like a solution to me. Not once did I think that filling that sad hole with food would help. I was protected. As Leah said in the beginning, beginning it's actually in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 109. It says, I was, I was given sure power and safe guidance. And all that time I was praying, I also never once thought, God, are you there? Where are you? Because I knew God was there. I knew this was Tom's time to leave, as sad as that was. I knew I was protected, even though this was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my, my life. I knew this was God's will because it happened and there was no earthly way to stop it. I knew I just couldn't see the big picture yet and all I had to do was hang on, that I'd be okay. You know, that was shown to me because of the preparation that I'd been put put in, you know, that had been put in place before all this happened. When I think back about all of those different events, sitting in my first meeting, looking at those people, pulling together a group of people that could support me, 
finding a prayer that would walk me through tough times. God was preparing the way way before I knew what was going to happen. And I am so grateful to this program that gave me the chance to spend those final months and weeks with Tom the way I did. I know I was a good wife and a good friend because I was able to let him have his own journey without trying to make it be about me. I had people that I could go to with my fears. And that way I could return to him calm and solid. And that is peer program. I was a rock. And he could depend on me because of what this program has done for me. I have um, a lot of names for my higher power today, and one of them is love. I felt such love from the people who shared the trip with me. I could see God in them when they poured their love on me, and I felt more protected than abandoned. I mean, as all of this was unfolding, uh, an experience ripe for self-pity, I didn't feel self-pity. I felt protected. And they helped me feel the feelings and then face the day with dignity. And then I could take that love and give it away to others who needed it. I have such abundance in my life today. So this is what recovery looks like. You know, there are easy times and there are hard times and there are very sad times and very happy times. But it's all so rich and beautiful. And to me, that's the power of God. Thanks for letting me tell my story. I love you all. And I'm done. <laughs> Pass. Leigh, are you there? Is anybody else there? Robin, thank, thank you, you Robin. so much. Robin, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your story of transformation. Thank you for sharing how the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of your life. And, uh, you know, you are living proof of how God has revolutionized your life. And we thank you for your time this morning. Now we open the lines for any questions you might have for our speaker this morning. And you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. This is Janice. Hi, Janice, good morning. Good morning. Janice, good morning, go ahead. Leah. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Vision for you, and good morning, Robin. Um, I I just was um, was once again so moved, so moved by the story of love and transformation that that you shared, and and one of the things that um, that I saw in this whole process was um, as part of the transformation, your ability to open up yourself for help, the help that was there, um, and I think that takes in that situation a certain amount of courage as well to surrender yourself to the love and care of the people that surrounded you during that time. And so I just wondered if you'd uh, make a comment briefly about that type of surrender, you know, just surrendering yourself to the, the loving and the giving that people wanted to share with you. And uh, thank you, my friend. And with that, I'll pass. 
Oh my gosh, I love this subject. <laughs> this has been this has been huge to me. I did not know that when a person is vulnerable, other people react. I thought that I was supposed to stay protected all my life, that it meant that I was weak, but I have found out that being vulnerable is strength. Because what happens when I'm vulnerable is that other people show up. Other people also allow their humanness to be seen. It's the most exciting thing I've ever experienced, actually, because it's, it's the perspective shift again. That, and, and only this experience could have shown me that. I had to be in a position where I was so, um, I was unable to be strong. I was unable to be protected or, you know, to keep my wall up. It was, I was unable to protect myself and I was vulnerable. And what I found that was when I was vulnerable, people poured out to help me. They were so full of love. It's like people are just waiting to help. They're just waiting to help. But it's that vulnerability, allowing people to see who I really am, that allows other people to come to the forefront and share who they really are, too. People are wonderful. People are so wonderful. I hope that answers your question, Janice. Thanks for asking it. That's really a big deal to me right now. Vulnerability is strength, not weakness. Thank you, Janice, for the question. Also, Robin, you know, perhaps you want to share just a moment that this circle, a lot of these networks that you had developed are with people who were also recovered and trudging through their own trials and tribulations, that they had practiced uh, what the big book was teaching for years along with you, you know, that you had been trudging together. Perhaps you want to add that element as well a little bit about trudging with people who were also with you for a decade. Yeah, I would like to talk about that um, because that's a really big deal too. Um, I uh, most, well, all of my friends now are friends that I have gained through this, this process because I found that the relationships that I used to have don't nourish me anymore. And um, what happened to me was that when I came in, I was encouraged to build a network of people. I was encouraged to find people that I could walk through this experience with. And what I was also told is to find somebody, you know, to talk on the phone a lot with people who are also doing the same thing um, because we need to learn from each other and with each other. I needed the, the support of having other people there who knew exactly what I was going through, and to find somebody who was younger than me that I could talk to occasionally um, so that I could be of service to that person or those people, to find people who were on the same page with me, who had the same age recovery-wise, basically, so that we could, you know, when, when you're going through the same kinds of things, you can process it. And that's really important. And to find people to talk to who were older than me uh, recovery-wise, you know, that might be able to teach me and give me their experience, strength, and hope. But, you know, having people, uh, I, I cleaved to people who were abstinent. I found people who were as um, intent on getting abstinent and staying abstinent and staying clean as I was 
because I saw it as a survival. I still see it as a survival thing. It's if, if I don't have the ability to process this stuff with people who are also doing what I'm doing, I'm just going to end up going back into the food. So I was really careful to, um, and that doesn't mean I don't talk to people who are struggling, but I have a core group of people who um, see this illness as a life and death situation and we're happy joyous and free today but we're that way because we work our steps on a daily basis and we process our things together so that might answer that question leah thank you robin anyone else with questions for robin this morning star one to unmute this is rose rose go ahead yes a question from massachusetts And I'm sorry, Rose, hold on one second. I'm not catching the name of the Massachusetts gal. Who's that? Eileen. Eileen. Okay, so Rose with your question, and then we'll go to Eileen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Leah, so much. Um, Robin, God bless you, and thank Mm. you. Like, so big time. Um, I won't say too much more because I won't be able to talk if I do. Mm. Um, But as you spoke... um, Something really did hit me that I'm interested in you sharing more about, which is, um, let's see here, and when you when you first got abstinent, and you said you pretended to um, be a brand newcomer, you know, like um, the prior ten years, you, and and I'm interested. I'm I'm in that place myself here. Um, being abstinent and having been brought through the steps. Um, I'm wondering what was particularly helpful to you? What were the things? You you did speak so specifically about everything that I needed to hear today. I I thank you so much for it. Mm. Um, But when you were at that stage, um, what were the things that were most helpful to you during that period? I know it would be all the program, but I'm interested in personally. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Rose. Um, I I don't know that everybody would approve of this <laughs> or agree with it, but I know about myself that I'm an immense people pleaser, or that I was back then. Um, I've definitely gotten better, but it was really a huge, huge issue for me. And what I had to do was once again see this as survival. And what that meant to me was I stopped going to my um, OA meeting because I knew if I walked into that room with my abstinence plan and what I was doing, I knew that they would try to love me back to accepting myself <laughs> and and not working the, the program the way I was seeing was working for these other people. So I had to... And this, for me, was all about people-pleasing. I knew that I would be wooed back into um, doing it the easier, softer way. I thought at the time it was the easier, softer way. It's not. It's the, it's much, it's the hardest way on earth to live in the food like that. This is the easier, softer way. But, but that was really um, an important thing for me to do at first was to, like I said, I used the word cleave. I cleaved to these new people. I mean, I clung to them. I, it, it was like we were in a lifeboat and we were tied together on a crazy, mad ocean. And um, so, you know, and, and we knew that because we talked about it. 
you know, I found people who agreed with me about that. And we, you know, we tied down to that boat together. But so so for me, it was important to um, physically walk away from that old way of thinking, which was, um, dare I say, fat serenity. You know, um, I needed to be a little bit, um, well... I you know I just I needed to I needed to do that. The other thing is that you know for me um I had also been very proud about the fact that I had been in OA for 10 years. I'd been leading groups. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd been I actually tried to sponsor somebody once. I mean, I thought I really thought that what I had was because of my intellect. I thought that I could do anything with my intellect, which was lying to me. Um and so for me, I had to uh, tell myself that all of those lessons that I learned were wrong. I needed to um, act as if I was walking into treatment for the first time, and this was all brand new to me. And what that meant was I allowed somebody to tell me exactly what to do. And she didn't always I mean, there were many times when we talked about personal responsibility and that, you know, I, I she didn't want to be my babysitter after a while. But in those first months, it was like, can I sit down now? Can I stand up now? Um, can I go out for dinner? You know, what should I do about this? What should I do about that? It was I was relearning how to think. I was allowing myself to be so dependent on somebody that I could then turn that dependence to my higher power. That's where it started. It was like I was being mothered. Mm. And in order to do that, I mean, I had to be 100% all there. You know, I, I so it was about total surrender to me. Does that answer your question, Rose? Oh, God bless you. Does it ever. Thank you. Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Rose, for the question. Eileen, let's go to you. Star one to unmute. Yes. This is Eileen from Massachusetts. Go ahead. Wow, Robin, that was quite a story. This is the first time I've gotten on this meeting, and Mm. it was riveting. Um, I, too, had a very 18-year struggle to get the willingness to surrender my substances, sugar and flour, and I finally did, and thank God the craving doesn't call to me anymore, but... I'll tell you honestly, uh, the repetitiveness of the meetings around here, like listening over and over and over again to this 12 steps, 12 traditions. I know you've read them at the beginning of this meeting too. And then hearing the same old stories of people that I've heard before. I'm just not able to get up and go to meetings anymore. And I'm concerned about that uh, because I'm not working my tools. But anyway, um, I wanted you to get your phone number, and I also wanted you to tell me uh, that statement that you were saying over and over, uh, God, I trust you, whatever. But Mm -hmm. thank you very much. Hi, Eileen. Thanks. Um, Can I give her my phone number after the recording is off, Leah? That would be totally fine, sure. Okay. Um, Eileen, my prayer is, um, God, I'm yours and I trust you. So, yeah, I hear you. Step one for me was getting abstinent. 
until then I wasn't able to do any of the other stuff. So, you know, that would be my first um my first reaction to what you were just saying, you know, if you're abstinent, if you have a sponsor, if you're listening to a vision for you, there's a good chance you'll recover. <laughs> if it worked for me, it can work for you. But you know, if I don't know if you've noticed, but in the big book, there is there's nowhere in the big book where it tells a person how to stop drinking. The big book is written on the you know, the assumption when you read the big book, the assumption is that you've already put down the alcohol. Um, the big book and the 12 and 12 are um, manuals that we use to learn how to live in the world, how to keep the alcohol down, how to keep the food down. So, you know, until I put down the food, none of it made any sense to me, which is the exact opposite of what I thought those 10 years in, in you know, the meeting I was going to. And I just, I thank God that somebody had the, the courage to tell me that you know, to break out of the mold and say, put down the food first and then pick up the steps. So thanks, Eileen. Yes, thank you, Eileen. Anyone else with questions Hi, for Robin? Nancy, go ahead. I just want to thank Robin for her gut-wrenching story. It really touched me and sometimes... People talk, 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 and I don't feel it. It's so important that I feel it, and I have such empathy and and such grace for you, and, and I appreciate mm-hmm. so much what you had to say. I'm one of those people who have been around the room since the 70s with major relapses, major absences. I'm back in the meetings, and I'm working the tools and everything else, but I'm not abstinent. And I'm struggling with the abstinence, and I'm I'm scared about what who is this right sponsor for me? I'm not trusting God. And one thing you kept saying, and I trust you, and I trust you, or something like that. And it's really about trusting God. And I don't know how to trust that I'm good, that who is this right sponsor for me? Somebody offered to sponsor me. I don't know whether to go on the 90-day to get a regular sponsor. I don't know. I don't know what's right for me, and I'm scared. The fear just makes me crippled. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm getting to meetings every day, either face-to-face or on the phone, but I still haven't put down the food, not the way it should be put down. I did go out and buy two scales yesterday, one to weigh myself once a month and one to weigh my food. So that's the beginning. But how do I trust God that and, and, and who will this person be? I'm just fearful about that. Thank you. Mm. Hi, Nancy. Thanks. Well, one of the things that you said in the beginning really struck me is that, you know, what we do in our program is we connect with other people. Um, it's the disconnect that caused my, you know, caused so many of my problems in the beginning that I thought food was the answer to. And, you know, I could spend a lot of time doing preparations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I just I just re- remodeled the bedroom, and I spent a lot of time gathering together the paint and the sanding paper, and, and there it sat on the shelf. I got to take action. And I sure, it's scary, but, you know, I mean, what else are you doing with your time? You might as well jump off. I, I, I don't know. I've uh, one of my excuses for a long time was that I was looking for the right sponsor, and um, somebody finally said to me, you know, just grab a sponsor who's abstinent, 
who is a little bit ahead of you. Um, and I don't know if, you know, I, 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 that's as far as the food, you know, as far as working the steps, um, I guess my suggestion would just be that you make phone calls and talk to people, but, uh, don't wait for anybody to drop into your lap, you know. I mean, I could sit on the shelf for my life waiting for somebody to come say, gee, I'd like to be your sponsor. It took, it took um, definitely it took action on my part. So thanks, Nancy. Thank you. Anyone else with questions for Rob and our speaker this morning? Alita? Alita, did Hello. I hear you? And do. Yes. Okay, Alita, go ahead, and then do. Go ahead, Alita. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Leia. Thank you, Vision, for you, and thank you so much, Robin. Um, I, I identified with so many things you said. Hmm. Thank you. It's Arlita? Are you still there? That was Alita, and it seems... Okay. Perhaps Thanks, Alita. Yes. <laughs> and let's go to Do. This is Sharon from Denver, Colorado. I would like to share. Okay, we're going to go to Do for a question, and then Sharon, if you have a question, let's go to Do first, please. Do star one to unmute. All right. Sharon, you're up with a question, please. Can you hear me now? Now do, yes. Go oh, ahead with the question. Good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you so much, um, Robin, for your share. I really got a mm. lot out of it. Um, mm. Actually, I'm I'm actually struggling with something else, and I heard uh, about the vulnerability, and I heard about, um, you know, uh, getting through things, and I was wondering if you could help me out with something. I... I belong to this group here, a Vision for You, and I tell you, it's it's wonderful. It's like a haven. It's a protection. It's the best thing for me, and I make so many connections with people here on the line. I actually travel, and I go see them, and I connect with them, and I feel very safe. However, um, my, my sponsor has um, at, requested from me to go to live you know, meetings, and um, and I've been doing that for a little while now, for a year and a half in an AA meeting, and um, I think for a couple of months in an OA meeting, and she wants me to connect with people in my own community where they're not like 10,000 miles away, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I'm I'm finding that I have a big struggle with that, that I don't connect with people that are very close to me and um and I heard a little bit about that in your story and I was wondering how it is to connect with people that are closer you know Mm -hmm. I I don't know I don't know what that is but I feel very socially retarded when it comes Mm -hmm. to that and so um I don't know if you have any suggestions around that Mm -hmm. I do thanks for the question um I do actually I have long experience with that (laughs) And what I would say from this point where I am right now is to trust the process. You know, um, many of us, me included, think, thought that um, things should happen quicker than they were. 
And, but I have to, when I came in, I was 45 years old. 45? 48. I was 48 years when I finally found uh, recovery, abstinence and recovery. And that's 48 years worth of bad habits and shutting down and, you know, um, dysfunction, mental illness. You know, I mean, that's that's a long time, and it's not going to change overnight. It wasn't a one-year event for me. I still have a long ways to go. I'm just better, you know. So one of the things that, um, you know, one of the things that you hear, I'd like to see if I can find it here. I might not be able to. It's um, working with others, I believe, in the big book. Hmm. Um, anyway, it's you know you just keep working your program regardless of what's going on around you, and things will follow. Um, you can get well regardless of anybody or anything. And um, the way I interpret that, as far as you know, personality traits and you know problems interacting with people, is that it. And that's why for me, it started with my group. It started with my program buddies. Because they were as <laughs> they were as immature as I was. <laughs> Sorry, guys, if any of you were out there. But th- that's where we learned. You know, we learn off of with each other. How it, it's the what happens is when you bond with people, when you find people that you can share this process with, you start noticing that they have unconditional love for you, and you start feeling. Un- I, this is what happened to me anyway. I felt unconditional love for them. It didn't matter what they said to me. I would still care about them and love them. And we'd end up laughing. The things that were really a big deal or embarrassing, we'd end up laughing about. And that way, over time, I learned how to interact with people in a different way. And then that came into my family. It wasn't the other way around. My poor husband had to wait until I learned how to be a better person and a better friend before I could be a better wife. Um, so, I, I mean, it's it's all in the steps. It's a process. You know, the process is going through steps four through nine, being of service, um, you know, continuing to pray and meditate to improve my conscious contact with my higher power. It's it's a process. And for some of us, it can take quite a long time. Some people, it happens quicker. I don't know too many of those. For most of us that I know, it takes quite a while. So, you know, I, I guess I would just say not to despair, not to worry. Just follow the book. There's a manual that you've got right there that tells you exactly what to do and to put your thinking on hold. One of the big things that I was told in the beginning was to turn my face away from thoughts that didn't help. Morbid reflection, worry, remorse. You know, as long as I'm staying clean by working through steps four through nine, I don't have to return to those thoughts that used to pull me under. So, um, you know, because I've learned my brain is not the best place for me to go for advice. So when it starts activating in a negative way, um, I pray, I meditate, I talk to my friends, I turn my face away from those, you know, negative thoughts and feelings, and I stay the course. I do the work, I do the steps, I make the amend, I change my behavior, I pray to God. So I hope that answers your question from my point of view. Do thanks for asking it. Yes, thank you, Do, for the question. 
Let's go back and see if Alita is there. Alita got muted accidentally, I believe. Alita. Hi, Alita. Alita, go ahead. Then we'll go to Sharon. Then we'll go to Jody. Go ahead, Alita. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leah. And thank you, Vision, for you. Thank you, Robin, so much. I identified so much with what you said and um, was very inspirational and helpful and very beautiful share. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that pause. I'm a big people pleaser also, and I find myself trying to be, depend on my self-sufficiency in social situations and not, I don't know, maybe it's just I have to trust the process and it will come, but I'm wondering if you have any tips on that. Thank you. Hi, Alita, again. <laughs> Thanks. Did you say the pause? Yeah. Developing? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that was that was a new idea to me when my sponsor said that to me in the beginning, to develop the pause. Um, <clears throat> and at first it was really hard because I kept rushing in and saying things. I still have a little bit of trouble with it. Um, but experience has taught me that when I rush in and spout off, I'm going to regret it. I'm going to have to go back and make an amend. I'm going to have to talk to somebody about it. It could be that I did something that embarrasses me. So um, it for me, it's been a process of uh, trial and error or experience of, man, I don't want to do that again, so I better just bite my tongue. You know, um, but the other thing that helps with developing the pause for me is recognizing that I don't have the answer for anybody else anymore. Uh, that was a that was a very hard lesson for me to learn because I don't know if you listened to the beginning, but when I was growing up, I thought I, I felt pretty powerful in the ability to control my family, and um, it was only as an adult that I understand I understood that um, that my solutions were not the best for other people, that I have no idea what your higher power has in store for you. So, you know, for me, a really big part of my uh, recovery has been recognizing that God does better for you than I do. So what that means is when a thought comes to my head and I want to rush in and say something, um, the the knowledge that it hasn't worked for me before, it didn't work for me in my life. It's not going to work for you if I tell you all the things that I think you should do. I might as well just let back, you know, sit back and let God do it, or wait. And and often what I do is I pray. You know, when I'm in a situation where um, my, you know, my first thought might be, oh no, I know what you should do, and then my second thought is, wait a minute. You know, God knows more than I do. So I might say my prayer, God, I trust you and I'm yours. God, I trust you and I'm yours. And then sometimes um, the chance to speak will pass, so I wasn't supposed to speak any anyway, or the silence will get longer and I'll realize that I am being called on to say something. Um, but if I take my time, then I usually have a chance to get my ego out of the way because I'm, I have a chance to... Um, not react emotionally or out of old habits, which don't suit me anymore. So I don't know if that helps, Alita, but thanks for the question. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alita. Let's go to Sharon for a question now. Sharon, star one to unmute. 
Hello? Is this Sharon? Yeah, can you hear me? We can. Go right ahead with your question, Sharon. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, and I just want to thank you, Robin, uh, so much for sharing your story and for your your willingness to be so vulnerable and honest. And I, too, just struggle so with being a people pleaser and being the oldest in my family with a mother who was mentally ill and taking over extreme responsibilities at a young age. So the one thing, I, you've answered a lot of the questions just from the other questions that have been asked the, uh, but yesterday, uh, I I was feeling a combination of feeling very loving inside and then also feeling very angry inside. And I did a 10-step last night. But what I wanted to ask is, how did you develop these um, core of recovered people? I do have a sponsor. I'm abstinent, but I um, uh, I am not at peace every single moment. And um, I understand it is a process, but how did you develop this core of recovered people? Did you just call and ask them, could I, could you be one of my core people and when I need to um, do those steps, a spot check inventory, whatever, do you have the time to do it right now? I just would like to know how you developed that core of recovered people. And also, because I've been in OA a long time and I've done many inventories, I was just wondering if you would share when you said that you had to act like you were a complete newcomer. Did you go back then and do an inventory all the way back to, to you know, day one like you'd never done one before? Um, those are my two questions, and God bless you, and thank you so much for your sharing. Thank Hi, you, Sharon. Sharon. Hi, Sharon. Thanks. Um, I'll start with uh, going back to newcomer. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I went back to the very beginning. I did a. I. I. I was. I told myself I'd never been in a twelve-step group before, a twelve-step program before, because I hadn't. And what I did, I don't know if your group is unhealthy as unhealthy as mine was, but I hadn't been in a twelve-step group. I'd been in a self-help group, and. Um, so when I came into this program, I I did an inventory. I started with step one. I started by writing my uh, my food history, my eating history. I did a lot of work on, um, you know, I did steps one, two, and three. My sponsor had um, had me read certain things, and I, you know, I read and I studied and I uh, wrote about them. When I got to the inventory process, I followed the um, the guidelines in the big book, which tell you exactly how to how to write down um, an inventory. And then I did what the big book said about turning that over with my sponsor. Um, so it's all right there in the book, but. E- I, I hadn't done any of those things that way. I had done them in the way of, um, well, first of all, I hadn't been abstinent. So there's no way I could have done a surrender. I wasn't even at step one when I was in the food before. So, yes, it was absolutely back to step one for me. Um, and then the first question you had about a core of recovered people, that took a lot of phone calls. And, no, I wouldn't just call somebody and say, would you be a part of my, my core network um, I talk to people before I do something like that because there are a lot of people in our program and not everybody is committed. And for me, one of my um, big issues when I was growing up and as a young adult was um, 
I would grab a friend because I needed something. Maybe I needed them to come to the cafeteria with me at college. Maybe I needed them to go to the bars with me. I would form friendships based on um, what, what you could give me. And if you were willing to be a friend of mine and provide those needs, then it didn't matter how healthy you were. I just, you know, you were my friend. And um, I got myself in a lot of trouble that way as I was growing up and couldn't get out of it because I had no idea how to extricate myself from relationships that were unhealthy. And granted, I was pretty unhealthy too, but I got in some really unhealthy relationships and I was not able to get out of them by doing anything except bolting and running. So when I came into this program, the idea was to have healthy relationships, which means taking the time to find out about somebody else. Um, You know, having the balance of not doing something out of a selfish reason, but because I want to get to know you. Um, I want to um, share my recovery with you. I want to talk to you about, um, you know, what your day is like. I want to learn from you. And I want to, you know, be there when you're learning. I want to, uh, so it's a completely different thing than the kind of relationships I had when I was growing up. And and just um, just because somebody's on a phone list, calling them and saying, will you be a part of my core network group? That just doesn't work for me anymore. Um, I need to, I um. I need to know that the people that are part of that network are not going to pull me under. So I spent a lot of time on the phone. Um, I make at least three phone calls a day to people, and I've been doing that for 12 years. Often it's more like 10 phone calls because I have a need or somebody else has a need. And that's a lot of practicing um, being honest with other people uh, not spending a lot of time on chit-chat, not gossiping. And in that process, I found some people who um, wanted healthy relationships as much as I did. So um, my answer to you there is put some time and effort into it. It's worth it because these are people that hopefully will go you know, spend the rest of your life with you. So take your time and do it in a mindful way. I hope that answers your question, Sharon. Thank you, Sharon, for the questions, and Robin, for your response. Now we go to Jody. Jody, thank you. Star one to unmute. This is Jody from Iowa, and thank you, Robin, for sharing your personal testimony. I'm interested in finding phone numbers. This is my second time on digital for you. And I'm also looking for a sponsor, and I was also wondering if Robin would be willing to share a phone number with me if I leave my phone number. Um, Robin's phone number will be given after the meeting. Okay. Thanks, yes. Leah. Thanks, mm-hmm. Jody. I'd love to talk to you sometime. I just would prefer to do it when when the recorder isn't on. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Can I leave my phone number for Sure, if you'd like calls? to. I'll give you a okay. call. Okay, my phone number is 319-361-9738. Thanks, Jody. You're welcome. Thank you. Any, thank you, Jody. Anyone with a question for Robin? Robin, how are we doing time-wise? I'm fine, Leah. Okay. Very good. Andy? Anyone else? 
Sandy? Sandy? Yes, yes, go ahead, Sandy, with a question, please. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Uh, Robin, your, your uh, share was just what I needed to hear, incredible. Mm-hmm. And the last thing you said about uh, grabbing people, I, I, I didn't really have a sponsor. She's more of a self-help chit-chat lady, um, not abstinent or anything. And um, But... I, I listen to phone meetings. I, I've went to one local face-to-face meeting. There aren't many, and they don't seem to use the big book. It's you know, it's sort of self-help and you know, general uh, literature, OA literature strictly. And uh, so I grab people online. I heard a woman said she lost a lot of weight and she's abstinent. I called her, said, "Will you be my sponsor?" She said, "Of course." And uh, she had like five minutes. Uh, per day to talk, and we were working on the big book. We're, uh, and I've been in L.A. for years. I, I lost 80 pounds, and I am, quote-unquote, abstinent, but a white-knuckle abstinent, no spiritual awakening. And so this woman, we did about five minutes a day. We're doing a beginning in the new fourth step, and she couldn't talk. She was busy. She was in the doctor's office and called back, and, you know, I, I just... Uh, you know, had a hissy fit and told her I don't want to work with her. But what you described about grabbing any old person, that's me. I don't make phone calls. Uh, I, I'd say that I don't think the face-to-face meeting is good. But but so how, how should I go to face-to-face meetings? There's only one and possibly two. Um, uh, you know, I listened to uh, certain phone meetings and just found this. So uh, do you have any advice for me? Mm, thanks, Sandy. Um, well, you're listening to Vision for You. A Vision for You has many, many uh, amazing sponsors and abstinent folks. And I would just, if I were you, listen to A Vision for You and make phone calls. And hopefully you'll find somebody who has what you want. Um, I think it's really important to... Uh, one of the things I heard once upon a time was it's better to go to a healthy AA meeting than an unhealthy OA meeting. Um, don't know if I'm allowed to say that here, but <laughs> um, that I think that that's kind of a good guideline. You want to find a meeting where people will do anything before picking up the food. I mean, it's your survival, right? So, you know, how free do you want to be? How much effort and work do you want to put into it? Do you want to be safe? If you want to be safe, then, I mean, that's how I felt about myself anyway, that I I wanted to survive. And in order to survive, I had to find something that worked for me or I was going to die. So what that meant was picking up the phone over and over and over until I was able to put together what I needed Um and, you know, if the sponsor you've got right now isn't working for you, then find one that does. <laughs> Unless you want to die, it's up to you. I guess, you know, sorry, I'm kind of flippant about it, but um, it's, it, it, I, I think that we tend to, us compulsive overeaters tend to minimize our problem and think that because we haven't died yet or because we haven't gotten sick yet, it'll just go on the way it is for a while. And, I'm here to tell you that things can change in a heartbeat. You know, my husband didn't die because of compulsive overeating, but every second is important. You know, you're given a chance, I'm given a chance today to change my life. Yet I think it's okay to wait until somebody comes along. 
you know, what if that somebody doesn't come along? What if I die tonight? You know, what if, I don't know, God forbid, there's a hurricane or another snowstorm in Minnesota? You know, I can't wait. I've got to take the action myself if I want to live. So I I just, you know, I encourage anybody who is just kind of quietly waiting for something to happen, I just encourage you to get off your butt and do something. Or die. So... Thanks, Sandy. I I don't know if I answered your question or not. I get pretty passionate about that because I spent I spent those years sitting in meetings where I had just kind of a quiet, um, you know, lull, falling into some sense of um, things are okay because I'm still getting my kids on the school bus, you know, and my husband hasn't left me, and. I, I I am here to tell you that there is a whole lot more to life. God has so much more in store for us, and that kind of life is a shadow life compared to what it is on this side. And you will have hard times. And do you want to get those hard time, through those hard times abstinently? Do you want to be prepared for them so that you can, you know, hold your head up and be of use to other people in your world? Or you know, fall back into the food and lose what sanity you've got. So um, thank you. That's my answer to that, Sandy. Thank you. Anyone else with a question? Thank Thank you, you. Sandy. Thank you. Anyone else with a question for Robin? Yes. Good morning. Good morning. This is Denise from Syracuse, New York. Yes, I I also have, I I want to thank you for your share. I feel it's very, you've been very honest and forthcoming, and it it means a lot to to hear your story. Um, I, too, am like the other person that that called in that I am in uh, desperate need of a sponsor, and I'd like to leave my phone number um, for you or for anyone who is available to sponsor, would that be okay? Sure, Denise, thanks. Um, my phone number is 315-200-4399. It's 315-200-4399. Thank I, you. And Thanks. I really appreciate your honesty. Thank you. Thank you, Denise. And just... From now on, please let's wait till after the recording to leave phone numbers. Thank you. And for sponsor requests will be done after the recording. Thank you. Denise, yes. um, Leah, can I say something? Of course. I think it's really important. One of the things that I was told in the beginning is for um, to not wait around for somebody to call me to ask me if they can be my sponsor. It's, um, you know, it's, 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 it was important for me to do the work to find my sponsor. Um, I could have been waiting for a long time if I had waited for somebody to call me. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you for your phone number, Denise, and um, I hope that you find a sponsor. Okay, Leah. Thanks, Robin. Okay, a question. Yes, Shandy, go ahead with a question. Thank you. Hi. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you, Robin. It was really nice to hear your story. What an amazing journey. I wanted to know about, you mentioned caretaking that you were um, involved with in the beginning of your journey in your youth. So the question is, what did you do, if anything, as far as that is concerned in your recovery? 
You know what? I'm sorry, I missed your name. Would you repeat it? <laughs> My name is Shandy. Shandy? Okay. And would you repeat the question? The question is if you did anything as far as the caretaking. Caretaking could be a very negative caretaking. part of caretaking. Yeah. Yeah, caretaking. Um, well, that has been um, that has been a thorn in my side all my life because I learned it so early. I thought it was the thing that was going to keep me safe. If I took care of other people, then they would take care of me. And that was the process that I was going through all of those years with my husband, um, finding out that it didn't work that way. That's not the way life is. And unable to change that about myself. And that, I, I, did, I did more work, well, I, I belong to another 12-step group also, which addresses the idea of caretaking. But I did more work on caretaking um, in a way as an abstinent recovering person than I did in the other group. And that was because I had the, um, the direction of the steps. And I had somebody who was willing to um, give me honest feedback about the things that I was doing. And I had the willingness to listen and take that information in and know that I wanted to change. So um, as far as work is concerned, um, pretty much everything has been dealt with by using the steps. Um, the, you know, in the big book, I can't remember what page it is, but it's in the doctor's story about um, acceptance. Acceptance is the answer to all my problems. And as long as I thought that um, I had an answer for somebody else and that I needed to make that happen so that they would be happy and I would be happy and we'd all be healthy, as long as I thought that, um, then I was in trouble. You know, then I was in that place of uh, resuscitable discontent. I was diseased, um, and it was it was working through the steps and learning about acceptance that I found out that I don't have the slightest idea what's right for somebody else. So once I, you know, had that spiritual awakening, then even though the old habit of caretaking would step back in, when it was pointed out to me or when I dealt with it through an amend process, it was easier for me to let go and act differently the next time. So it's really a process of practice, you know, of working through um, doing a step, a 10th step at the end of the day. So I'm constantly, um, whenever I've made a mistake during the day, whenever I've done something that has caused somebody else harm or me harm, you know, I talk to my sponsor about it. I figure out, um, and if it is caretaking, then I have the the habit now of knowing what to do about that, which is praying, giving that person over to God, giving that situation over to God, and letting go. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's stuff that's worked for me. Once Thank again, you, it's Shane. trusting the process, I think. Thank you, Robin. Next, who has a question? Hi. 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 Yes, it's Francis from New York. Francis, go ahead. I just wanted um, to thank Robin for her share. It was really um, inspiring, meaningful. I learned a lot from it. But I, I wanted to ask her, 
what transformation she saw in her family, like her husband Tom and her children, in terms of over over those ten to twelve years, in terms of did it have a an effect on your children? Hi, Francis. That's a good question because it makes me laugh. <laughs> I used to say that I would um, leave my house and my husband would be misbehaving and I would go to my meeting and I would come home and he was fine. You know, it's like he did in that two hours when I was at my meeting, he, you know, that two hours, he really shaped up wonderfully. And you know what? He really didn't change at all. It wasn't him. It was my attitude towards him. So when you talk about my family, it makes me laugh because they were fine all the time. You know, none of them really, none of them were sick. My kids are normal. My husband had his own program. It was me and my attitude towards them that colored everything I saw about them. All the stuff that I thought was unacceptable about my husband, that wasn't unacceptable. It was me wanting him to be different because I thought that that would make me happy if he was different. Um... So, you know, I would have to say that I have not seen a change in them, except that they've grown up and I have a healthy relationship with each of them. I do remember I had one experience where my daughter, Laura, who, you know, when she was about 13, she was able to start talking about what she remembered about my behavior. And there was one time when she told me that we had... she'd been in the car with me and I had parked the car to run across the street to look at something and she had she had had her window or her her face pressed up against the window watching me run across the street and back because she was terrified that I was going to get hit by a car because of my weight she saw that I was so fat and I was moving so slowly that I wasn't going to make it and it makes me just cry inside to think that I put my kids through that kind of sadness but, you know, kids have a short memory, and um, I replaced the bad stuff with good stuff, and now I have healthy relationships with all of them. So that's my answer to that, Francis. Thanks for asking it. Thank you, Francis. Anyone else with a question for Robin this morning? Hi, Leah. Yeah. I'm hearing two voices. Identify Hi. yourself, please. Hi, it's Nick. Good morning. And go Carolyn. ahead, And then Carolyn. Hello? Yes, you. Go ahead, and then oh, Carolyn. Okay. 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 Hi. Good morning. Good morning, Robin. This is Mary Lou from California. I want to thank you for um, your story and for the cohesiveness of the clarity that I hear in your voice. Mm. And I wanted to thank you for that. And I, I wept through the part of your story where you spoke of your husband and that prayer. I wrote down that prayer. And, and also the, what you talked about learning to pause. Um, I wrote that down too because it really spoke to me in my heart. And um, what I want, my question is, you mentioned that your recovered sponsor, when you came back in um, and worked with the recovered sponsor, that she was um, compassionate and loving. And how important was that aspect of her personality in your process of becoming recovered? And how, how did she balance that with being firm, and serious about recovery, but also being compassionate and loving and patient with you. Because, you know, someone could be softy, softy, mamby, pamby, and then lose the firmness and structure of the directed work through the actual big book. But how important was that in your healing regarding your own issues with your um, mother of origin and, um, 
I want I was wondering if you could address that relationship. Mary Lou, is that the name? Yes. Yes. Hi, Mary Lou yes. Mary Lou. This makes me mm-hmm. smile too. Mm-hmm. My sponsor was a velvet hammer in the beginning. And mm. it was uh, I live in Minnesota where Minnesota nice is I'm sure you've seen it on movies and stuff. Minnesota nice means that we all treat each other very well, but then we talk about each other when we're, you know, we gossip. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's just a state of people-pleasing, folks. Excuse me, fellow Minnesotans, maybe this isn't true about you, but I, the, most of the Minnesotans that I knew back then were, you know, it was fat serenity and, you know, everybody was loving each other and we were all being very gentle and kind with each other, so much so that we were dying. The message of the program was not, (laughs) it's not, I'm going to love you to death. The message of the program is, I love you so much that I'm going to tell you the truth. And the truth is hard sometimes to take. It doesn't feel good. But I was also told in the beginning that my feelings didn't matter because my feelings were probably lies. So I was very thankful, very thankful to have a sponsor who had the courage to tell it like it was, which was, Robin, you're being a people pleaser. You know, Robin, um, why don't you take a look at that? And, you know, what I hear is that perhaps, um, you know, you're being a bit selfish. Or do you think you're selfish? Or let's, you know, where were you selfish, self-centered, dishonest, or fearful? You know, there was no, um, oh, it's okay, don't worry about that. You know, um, it, there was none of that stuff that I'd heard in traditional in in the OA meeting that I'd been going to, where it was more important to protect my feelings than it was to protect your feelings. And what I heard when I came when I started using the Big Book was that it was more important for me to think about you, to be um, to you know, shine a light on my character defects, but not to shine a light on your character defects. So, you know, um, what I was, what I learned in this program is that um, sometimes tough love is really important. But at the same time, there was tremendous compassion because I could see that my sponsor loved me as a compulsive overeater, loved me as a child of God, but she wasn't going to um, love me to death. You know, she was going to tell me what she saw because the truth is, in OA, we are the only people who can do that for each other. There is nobody else in my outside life who has the ability to tell me what I'm doing. They can't see it. They don't recognize it. You can't bullshit a bullshitter. And when somebody in my network points something out to me, I sit up and take I, I sit up and listen. You know, I take notice because um, nobody else is going to do that. You know, it's like you got lipstick on your teeth and nobody tells you because they don't want to hurt your feelings. Well, in, in OA, when we use the big book as, as a guideline, um, you know, what we do is we shine a light on each other out of love and compassion. There's nobody else in the world that's going to do that for me. So I take that as a very important responsibility, even though my, um, you know, my old habits, my old tapes tell me that I want you to like me, and I'd prefer to tell you nice things so that you'd like me. 
But if I see you doing something that I recognize as a dangerous something that might pull you back into the food, I'm going to point it out to you because that's my responsibility. When you've contracted with me, say, as a sponsor or as a network person, you know, you're telling me, will you please help me stay alive? I, I was at a um, conference once where the keynote speaker said, keep each other alive. You know, that was his last word to us, keep each other alive. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's why my network is a strong network, because we do that for each other. We're not afraid to tell each other the truth. So that's what I have to say about that. Did it answer your question, Mary Lou? Or did I scare you away? <laughs> Thank you, Robin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I just want to thank. Okay, thanks, Mary Lou. Thank you, Carolyn. Your turn. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for your share. I too mm-hmm. with you, um, and it was just so awesome to hear your story and and how you turned to God. And I, I would just like um, for you to elaborate a little more for. Both that are new and don't have a clue, um, when you're giving yourself over, because I too have experienced something similar, not as dramatic at the end, thank you God, but very similar that I too knew that I had committed myself to God when I was going through a tough situation. And I just want you to elaborate a little for those that are fairly new to help them understand what it is to let go, rely, and trust in God. Hi, Carolyn. You broke up a bit there, so I hope I heard what you were asking to talk about what it means to let go and let God. Is that right? Yeah, let me try it. Just um, to explain to um, people that are fairly new on the line to, so that they can understand what it is to let your life completely go to go in, into God's care and to allow him to be in charge and, and for us to step back. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, Carolyn. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that I did not do that at first. Um, if if you're a newcomer, you may have the same experience I did, that I was not able to find God at first. I had to uh, depend on people. I For me, it was really important to... My higher power in the beginning was my sponsor and the program. And that was necessary for me. I had grown up with a specific idea of what God was, and that wasn't working for me. And so if I had kept going back to that well, I would not have recovered. Um, So my higher power in the beginning was a a sponsor who gave me direct guidance and helped me. And the program, which I could get 100% behind, not only because I'd seen my husband recover, but because I could see that it was um, all-inclusive, that nobody was left out, that everybody got a chance to do this. And then and then it was probably in my second year, perhaps, that I started um, opening up. Well, I'll tell you one of the experiences I had was that I was standing at my kitchen counter, and I happened to have a food plan that I weigh and measure, and I was weighing and measuring my food, and um, I was making my lunch. The house was empty. I had been abstinent for a little bit of time, and I had the thought I could add food to my plate, I could have a little bit extra. My sponsor will never know. She's not here. She's not looking over my shoulder. And then I thought, I had, that's the thought that came in next that, was, that pushed out that first thought was God's here with me. 
that this is between me and God. It's not between me and my sponsor. My sponsor is like a placeholder until I can find my higher power. And I think that was my first experience of um, of a personal relationship with a higher power. That this was really, and and I saw this with my husband too as he was passing away. That each one of us is really, we can surround ourselves by these wonderful people that we walk through this with. But ultimately, we're alone with God. We all have a life that we're living here, connected with many people, but still it's me and my higher power, ultimately. And I need to be right with that. Um, So, you know, for me, it was a gradual process of coming to understand that my sponsor wasn't God, that my higher power was becoming something um, much greater than any of the people that I talk to every day <laughs> because I could see that those people were having remarkable things happen in their life. And I could see that the same, it, it was a little bit harder for me to see it for myself because I was so on top of my own life. But, you know, it, my vision was so narrow. But I could see looking at other people, and that's why it was important for me to have recovered people as a network because I could see as we were talking oh, that sounds like God. That must have been God involved. Well, isn't that interesting that that happened? You couldn't have made that happen. That must have been divine intervention. You know, so it was a process of talking to people and and observing them and seeing how my life was changing, that my higher power developed into something that I could trust and believe in when uh, things got harder later on. So... Hope that answers that question, Caroline. Thank you. Thank you very much. Leah, I lost you. Thank you very much, Carolyn. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie, for the question. Carolyn, thank you. Um, Anyone else this morning? Well, we still have a little bit of time here. Anyone with a Hi, question? it's Esther. Good morning. Hi. Hi, Esther. Go ahead with your question. Hi. Um, I apologize. I came in the middle of your qual- beautiful, beautiful, touching qualification. Mm-hmm. Um, you had me in tears, so thank you for sharing your story. Um, my question is that uh, two, two things. First of all, um, when you talk about core people, um, I do a lot of, I'm doing, I started making those phone calls, which is in itself is so big, but I never know what to say. I know this sounds funny, but you know, you start off and you say, you know, oh, I heard you on the meeting and I don't know what to say to people. That's number one to, 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 I mean, okay. And my second question is, when your husband was really ill and uh, you described the way, you know, it was getting worse, getting worse, how did you manage your food plan physically? What did that look like? Hmm. Hi, Esther. Good questions. Hi. Because actually they're one and the same. Phone calls and um, phone calls and core people and food plan. My core people provided my food for me. It was as simple oh. as that. 
I I did I think the first meal I asked for I called somebody when my husband was in the emergency room and I said would you please bring me a weighed and measured snack this is what I need and she dropped it off for me and then I think somehow there was a process of people were you know this is where anonymity um, you know we talk about anonymity and the importance of it but also um, the fact that we don't want to use anonymity in such a way that it harms a member or we want to make sure that we – well, what I'm trying to say is the word spread. And I was very happy about that, that I was a member in trouble and I needed help. And um, my my group actually provided my food for a couple of weeks. And those were weighed and measured meals that I had in the freezer, and I took them out and I defrosted them. Um, and, and that all happened because I'd done the footwork on the phone for a number of years and when you talk about, you know, when you ask what you say, well, um, ask about them. <laughs> People love to talk about themselves. And I have found that that works every time. I just say, tell me about your life. Tell me about your eating history. Tell me about your family. How long have you been in OA? You know, um, and then you get a chance to talk about yourself too. But that's a great opener, I think, I just say what I, and especially in the beginning, what I said was I'm a newcomer and um, I'm brand new to this program and I um, am making my outreach calls and, you know, how are you today? Tell me about your life. Tell me about your history. So I hope that answers your question, Esther. Thanks for asking it. Thank you, Esther, for the question. Thanks, Rob. Mm-hmm. Anyone else this morning? Questions for our speaker, Robin, this morning? Hi. Hello? Yes, good morning. <clears throat> yeah, this is Mary in Hi, Southern California. Hi, in Southern California. And actually, what I just want to do is express my gratitude and mm-hmm. um, my belief in divine intervention. Um, last night when I went to bed, I set my clock. Um, I also um, snoozed button, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, hit the snooze button, and missed part of your um, your talk. I had gotten out of bed to look up phone message, phone times, because I am um, a beginner. That's you know like beginning after remission and remission and remission and and um not remission what am i saying <laughs> you know the the r word mm-hmm. <laughs> um i um just am so uh, inspired by mm. you but also i mean i see the god in this and i just really um just wanted to say thank you for that and i also you know um am learning to um speak when i don't want to I don't want to, I didn't want to mute the button. I kept saying, oh, the meeting's <laughs> just about over. You know, she's, you know, she's so um, answering so many good questions. I don't want to take, take up the time. So I just I just thought, you know, this could be a first step mm-hmm. to say mm-hmm. that, um, you know, might as well start with gratitude. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I also would appreciate um, your phone number if you're willing, and um, I'll stay on after the meeting. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mary. It takes a lot of courage to unmute and speak. I know because I'm an introvert, and I was shaking in my boots the first time I did it. So thank you for talking. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Anyone else? 
Yes, this is Lisa from Upstate New York. I have a question. Of course, Lisa, go ahead. Hi, Leah, thank you for your service. And Robin, thank you for your share. Um, It was unbelievable because Mm. you talked about some of the same issues I'm currently going through now. I've only been in OA since October, and um, kind of like what you you had mentioned, someone I said to you, I'm like putting off getting a sponsor because I'm like I don't know what to who to get, and you know I'm making all these excuses. Um, I haven't been abstinent. Um, I did decide to get a step sponsor about last week, but the the message that I keep hearing that you said today was to get abstinent and then work the steps. Um, and, and there was just so much you talked about. I would love mm. to talk to you in private <laughs> and just share what you said. But, but the key thing, the reason, I'm, the question that I have is when you talked about your network and you talked about um, coming to a point where you want to be in relation with other healthy people, not just to be in relation with people. And I guess my question is, you know, once you start talking to them and you're getting to know them, and you know, say after a few conversations, you realize that, you know, I mean, no, none of us are perfect and none of us are, you know, at a point where we don't have something to work on. But if you realize that they are unhealthy and they don't seem like they're even willing to get healthy, how then do you end, you know, that relationship? Mm, thanks, Lisa. Um, well, first of all, I'd like to say that I don't, end a relationship. Um, What I've been talking about is um, establishing my core network. Um, In my program, I believe that we all have the ability to find recovery, no matter what mental illness we have, no matter what our life events are. Just because I don't bond with you, um, it doesn't mean that I'm done with you. you Um, Because I've been through some hard stuff that made me talk in a crazy fashion, too. And thank God people just didn't stop calling me. Um, So, you know, I I guess my criteria is if somebody is working an OA program, a 12-step OA program, um, I certainly have a place in my life for them. Um, They might not be the person that I would call every day when I'm going through some hard stuff. Um, you know, they might not be the person that I would call every week, but I I sure have room in my life for I I have the ability to love abundantly. And if I close the door on somebody, maybe I'm closing the door on God. It's just that I'm going to be careful who I spend time talking in long conversations with. If it's somebody who maybe um, makes me feel a little bit crazy, maybe I'll limit that conversation. Or maybe I'll talk to my sponsor before or after talking to that person. But, you know, if somebody is working a 12-step program in OA, then absolutely I'm going to want to talk to them. I'm not going to shut the door on that or decide that I'm never going to talk to them. So, and that's that's a big difference between the way I used to be. I used to think that if you did one thing wrong, I'd dump you because I was afraid of you. You know, so a big part of my growth has been, you know, there are all kinds of shades of gray. It doesn't have to be black or white. That's not how God intended me to live, I don't believe, today. Because everybody is a child of God. Um, I'm just going to limit my 
uh, exposure. So I hope that answers your question, Lisa. Thanks for asking it. Thank you, Lisa. All right. Any other questions this morning before we wrap up and bid each other farewell? Star one to unmute. Hello, this is Mary. Hello. Hi, Mary. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, the question, good morning. Since I was late to this call, um, I don't uh, know what the focus, you know, like um, someone mentioned another program or uh, that you can listen to, um, you know, uh, the Vision for You. Uh, what What is the focus of of this call so that I can make this my go-to call? <laughs> well, welcome. Uh, Thank you. Welcome to you, uh, Mary. Uh, this is this meeting is called a vision for you. It meets oh, Monday yes. through Friday. On Sundays we have special edition meetings. Today Robin told her story of transformation. And if you can hang on a minute, I'm going to give a lot of information after the recording uh, regarding how you can you know uh, access this recording via the website, etc. So if you thank you, you thank you. Okay, so, welcome yeah, thank you to so you. Welcome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other questions this morning for our speaker before we uh, say goodbye to one another? Hi, this is Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Go ahead. Just wanted to thank Rose so much for your recovery and the wonderful, amazing story. I really am amazed by how you were able to cling to your program, cling to God through the whole issue with your husband. I am an extremely codependent food addict, and I have been abstinent for five years, but I just am blown away by how you were able to keep surrendering to God, surrendering to God. Mm. Was that something that happened gradually, or how did you get to a point where you were just living in utter surrender? Mm. Hi, Lisa. It happened very gradually, and I'll tell you that when I was going through the experience with my husband, um, there were many false starts on my part where um, I spent quite a bit of time um, researching what was happening to him, so much so that it became almost an obsession. And be, But because I have people in my life who I was talking to about it, I had they would listen and they would suggest that I back off a bit. And, you know, so that's how I dealt with that caretaking codependency thing where I, you know, my... Um, my brain kept telling me that I could make this right, that I could fix it, that I, if I was in control, if I was in charge, this would look different. I mean, there were there were months there where he did not want to let the doctor know what was going on, and I thought if he did tell the doctor, they might be able to save him and save yeah. his life. And um, but he had his own process to go through, and it was that he wanted to accept what was happening to him, and not fight. And everybody gets the dignity of that choice in their life, you know. So I thank God that I had people that were keeping me from getting my feet back in there or my, you know, diving back into that pool of control because I I couldn't always do it for myself, you know. So um, once again, it's back work back to the network. It's It's the the connections that I had developed with people who knew what my issues were 
and who knew that I was perhaps harming myself by learning too much. You know, when if Tom didn't want the knowledge, then it it wasn't for me to know. It was a, a it was an inside job for him with him and his higher power, and me throwing all kinds of um, you know education at it was not going to bring me acceptance. But I had people who kept feeding me that acceptance is the answer. Acceptance is the answer. Let go. You're harming yourself by thinking about this stuff too much. So. Um, Wow. You know, it, it's it's a network thing again. It's inviting people in, being vulnerable, letting them see who I am and what my issues are, and then accepting their input. Yeah, I I I'm in. I think the same program. The other program is your. The um, thing I would want to do is keep suggesting and doing all the research and bringing it in, and and that would not help him or me. You mm-hmm. know. Oh, my gosh, what a great example. Thank you for your story. I can't wait to listen to it again. Oh, thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Lisa. And for those that do want to listen to this recording, the share ID number for Robin's story is 4408. 4408 if you'd like to listen to this another time. And, Robin, thank you very much for all the time and energy and and being just a living example of what mm. God can do when he revolutionizes our our lives. Thank you so much for your heartfelt uh, story. Thank you. Mm. And I will close the meeting with the way a vision for you always closes its meeting, and that is from page 164, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.